Hi, and welcome to the Hearth Matters Podcast. I'm Erin Zuma. Today you'll hear Catherine and I read part one of our three-part Hearth Matters chapbook series called Hearth Story. And this is where we explore a question. In our relentless pursuit of progress, have we inadvertently dimmed the flame and forgotten the pivotal role that home and hearth play in nourishing the human family? And if so, how do we find our way home? A quick note on the chapbook series. You can think about this podcast as the audiobook version. The visual, highly image-rich version of this chapbook is available with the entire series at our substack, www.thehearthmatters.com. Eventually, these short stories will find their way into a real book, but for now, we think these little chapbooks are a fun and easy way to convey big ideas. Although this format is mostly used for illustrated poetry these days, chapbooks actually date all the way back to the 16th century, where they were a popular format for grassroots storytelling, and they were loved by authors who couldn't afford to print an entire book. Our digital version hopes to embrace the spirit of this tradition and to merge it with the storytelling technology from the information age. We hope you enjoy listening and reading as much as we enjoyed creating these chapbooks. Thanks so much for being here, and please enjoy... The Hearth Story. This is our introduction to our series on how to reinvent home and hearth for human flourishing in the 21st century. We start uh, with page one. Have you ever wondered why in the developed West, where we are wealthier, more educated, and have more freedom than any other time in history, why humans are not flourishing at unparalleled levels. You know, these are the best of times. Maternal deaths per 100,000 births are down from 850 to less than 32 in the past 100 years. And life expectancy is up, uh, you know, quite a bit. Uh, It's up to 78 years on average, 25 years, uh, more than people lived 100 years ago. The poverty rate in the United States was upwards of 50% in the 1920s. And right now it hovers at under 12%. And occupational safety is much, much better than it used to be. Uh, uh, Related deaths per uh, 100,000 Americans are down from 28 to 1.42 in the last 100 years. So people aren't dying on the job the way they used to. Right. And almost all of our households have access to internet services (laughs) 85% of American adults have a smartphone. And education levels are at the highest ever. High school graduation is up uh, to 85% from 20% in the 1920s. And last but not least, American women hold more college degrees than men. 39% of women aged 25 plus hold bachelor's degrees, which is up from 8% in the 1970s. This is one of the many metrics that demonstrate the parity women have achieved with men in just half a century. You know, but these are also the worst of times. One in four American children grew up without a father. And one in three teen girls seriously consider attempting suicide, up 60% in the last decade. We see that one in four American eighth graders are proficient in math. So that's three in four who are not meeting the mark. Uh, That's right. 37% of adults aged 12 to 17 feel persistent hopelessness and sadness. 
and 10% of American children are clinically diagnosed with anxiety. 47% of mothers feel parenting is stressful all or most of the time. A whopping near 80% don't feel that their children will be better off. So we have quite a few more statistics here on this page that you can come back to if you'd like to see. Uh, but we're, our point is that uh, things aren't going as well as they should be. That's right. And, you know, we, we wondered why. Um, and we are Catherine, me. Uh, I'm a practical Jen Joneser. And uh, the reason we make that distinction is that uh, I'm born in 1963. Uh, I do not think of myself as a boomer. Uh, I guess I'm not really a Gen Xer, although I feel like one. So apparently there's this uh, group of people in between <laughs> called Jen Joneser. And I'm, I'm a seasoned entrepreneur. And Aaron, uh, uh, my partner here, is a curious millennial and communications professional. And we connected through an online conversation while exploring this very question, but from two very different perspectives. Uh, so a little bit more about me, uh, and I'm going to just read my bio here. In my four-decade journey in the food industry as a chef, restaurant owner, food company founder, cookbook author, and TEDxer, I've always been drawn to traditional foods and women, uh, especially their roles in culinary history. And in my earliest days as a chef and a traveler, I remember venturing to off-the-beaten-path locales eager to learn the age-old recipes and techniques passed down through generations. More often than not, it was the grandmothers and the mothers and the daughters who were the custodians of these culinary treasures. Their kitchens, humming with activity, were schools of invaluable knowledge. And it wasn't just about the recipes. Each dish came with a story, a history interwoven with tales of family, love, hardship, and celebration. In 2016, while doing research for another project, I started to notice a really disturbing trend. As cultures modernized and women moved from these traditionally domestic spheres into the market economy, the knowledge, wisdom, expertise that they'd once been revered for seemed to lose its social status. Both the soft skills and the practical knowledge that nourish and propel humanity, and ensure our species' survival have in the last hundred years largely been relegated to the lowest rungs of our societal hierarchies in the developed West. How did this happen? Finding an answer to this question became an obsession. And as I ventured deeper into our historical record, a compelling story began to un unfold that not only shed light on our present predicament, but also hinted at paths towards possible solutions. And then I met Erin, a young woman on the verge of motherhood who was thinking about many of the same topics, but through a different lens. Her insights have not only enhanced my own understanding of the issues that women her generation face, but they continue to shape our collaborative efforts at our nonprofit, Hearth Matters. And I'm Erin. I tried out more than a handful of careers before my maternal instinct showed up and revealed a path to purpose and work that I had never once considered. I thought, what if I wasn't meant to be a marketer or an HR manager or a gym franchisee or anything else related to the various jobs that I'd held throughout my 20s? 
For the first time in my life, I imagined that I could be totally fulfilled as a mother and a wife by building a family rather than building a business or a resume. This primal instinct and the thoughts that came along with it were wildly unsettling. After all, I was college educated and high achieving, an independent young woman who grew up knowing that she could do virtually anything she put her mind to. I was supposed to live up to my potential and walk through doors that had been opened for me by generations of trailblazing women who came before. There was only one option that was off the table, full-time homemaker. While developing my plan to transition from wannabe girl boss to a home-based job that fit me in mom mode, I began to notice the way our culture portrays mothers and homemakers as oppressed or lazy, and to recognize that I had internalized these narratives from a very early age. I wondered how many women are like me, trying to make it in the market economy when they'd much prefer to make home while caring for their children. I also observed a knowledge gap and asked myself why, given all of my education, I knew so little about my own fertility or how to start a family. Then I met Catherine, and she told me a story about how the hearth lost its social and economic significance and where the feminism I was raised with may have fallen short of meaningfully advancing all women's interests. I was drawn to her pragmatic ideas about how we might upgrade the lives of mothers and homemakers, their families, and their communities in the 21st century. Hearth Matters and this chapbook series represent our hope for the future and for the many generations of young women who will come after us. So that's a bit about us and our why. And now we're going to jump into the hearth story with our primer. In the 60s and the 70s, as women poured into the labor market, there wasn't much of a plan for who was going to mind hearth and home. Modern appliances played a pivotal role in this transition, shrinking the typical woman's household tasks from 60 hours per week at the turn of the 20th century to around 20 hours per week by the 1970s. Liberated from much of their domestic labor, many women jumped at the chance to bolster their family's finances with a second income or to become financially independent. The era symbolized progress as women envisioned blending rewarding careers with family life. Fast forward to today, and the realities of modern life tell a very different story. Contemporary women and mothers work 40 hours a week in the market economy, many in jobs they don't love, only to return home to another 22 and a half hours of domestic labor caring for their families. Ironically, the time gains made in the 1970s, thanks to modern conveniences, have all but disappeared. Likewise, monetary gains have slipped as families allocate a significant portion of their earnings to childcare. In order to keep our homes running smoothly, we must outsource much of the domestic labor we once took care of ourselves, like cooking and cleaning and childcare, to the market economy, which often means settling uh, for lesser quality goods and services at a premium cost. Despite our best intentions and Herculean efforts. The fact is, this new arrangement is simply not working. We're exhausted. Our kids are struggling with alarming rates of obesity, illness, and depression. And our men 
aren't faring much better. The hope and optimism of the 70s has faded into despair for many women. Having it all turns out to be a myth. So we move into the vision. While exploring food systems, traditional food systems, and the decline in status of women's roles within the domestic sphere as cultures modernized, Catherine began to wonder if there was a possible link between some of our societal ills and too much market economy encroachment into our homes. And then an idea occurred to her. What if we could merge the practical knowledge and wisdom of the traditional cottage economy culture she cherished with the innovations of the information age and the sharing economy. That's when a vision started to crystallize a domestic ec- economic framework that not only reduced women's workload and economic vulnerability, but also elevated the status and significance of the caregiving activities in our home, aligning them with their importance to our survival as a species and ensuring a brighter future for our children. What follows is a brief telling of Catherine's findings and the unfolding of a vision that inspired our forthcoming book, which is due to be released in spring of 2024. So now we get into uh, our first section, which is a brief history. We keep it pretty brief here in the book. We will go into more detail Uh, But first, we're going to start out with a little bit of lexicon. Um, Why have we used the word hearth? The concept of hearth as the home's heart is a powerful symbol. In ancient times, the hearth was the place where people cooked their meals, warmed themselves during cold weather, and gathered for storytelling and companionship. In his book, Catching Fire, Harvard anthropologist and primatologist Richard Wrangham points out that our brains have doubled in size uh, since we started uh, using fire to make our food more digestible. He argues that this development made us the modern humans we are today. In the modern context, even though many homes may not physically have a hearth or fireplace, uh, the term still evokes images of family care, warmth, and nourishment and hospitality. We use the term hearth to represent the domestic sphere. We also define human flourishing. The concept of human flourishing was central to classical Greek philosophy, particularly within the works of Aristotle. He referred to it as eudaimonia, which is often translated to happiness, prosperity, or flourishing. To flourish as a human, according to Aristotle, is to live a virtuous life, seek wisdom, cultivate good relationships, and actively contribute to the well-being of the community. It's about realizing one's full potential and living in a way that's true to one's nature and purpose. Right, right. Okay, so now we're going to move on to four pages that very briefly describe the history of the hearth. The first page is called From Cave to Farm. Though our understanding of how our ancient ancestors made home is largely speculative, we do know that from around 500,000 BC to approximately 8,000 BC, humans were nomadic hunter-gatherers living in small and perhaps egalitarian groups. During this era, the mastery of fire lit our first campfires and served as a significant 
technological catalyst for human evolution, as we've already discussed. Just as fire revolutionized our early existence, another pivotal technology would forever reshape our conception of home, and that's the plow. Emerging in different places around the world between 8,000 and 4,000 BC, this seemingly simple invention propelled humans into the agricultural revolution and into fixed dwellings centered around a new type of campfire, the hearth. Our new homes became epicenters of economic activity where families engaged in farming, crafting, and trading. And the next major transition is from farm to factory. Echoing the profound effects of fire and the plow, the 17th and 18th centuries brought new technologies to our homes. Steam and electricity sparked the Industrial Revolution and with it, a new market economy. Work, which had been rooted in our homes and embedded in cottage economies, now moved to the factories, The once blurred space between home and work and the division of labor between the sexes was now distinctly split into two spheres. They were separate, and it was the private sphere, which was managed by women, and the public sphere led mostly by men. And the next page, from factory to boardroom, in the early days of the Industrial Revolution, First-wave feminists united to fight for the deplorable uh, working conditions in factories and eventually for the right to vote. Not long after, first-wave feminists splintered into various groups. In her book, Feminism Against Progress, author Mary Harrington describes two of those groups as Team Care and Team Freedom. Team Care championed the domestic sphere as a sanctuary away from the often alienating and harsh realities of the public sphere, while Team Freedom saw an opportunity to break free from traditional roles and pursue equality with men in the public sphere. In the new market economy, influenced by several new technologies, including home appliances, the automobile, and perhaps most important, Importantly, the birth control pill, second-wave feminists escaped the confines of their suburban homes at unprecedented rates in the pursuit of self-discovery, equality, and financial autonomy. Western women have made incredible gains in the public sphere over the last 60 years, achieving levels of education, equality, and financial independence that our great-grandmothers could only dream of. But there has been a price. We've had to leave the domestic sphere largely unattended in order to accomplish all of this. That's right. And on this next page, we discuss feminism and the hearth. Although there are records of women challenging misogyny as far back as the medieval period, the modern feminist movement didn't start to take shape until the 19th and 20th centuries. Today, There are so many forms of feminism, it can make your head spin. For starters, there are four waves of feminism, and within that larger framework, there are liberal feminists, radical feminists, Marxist feminists, and cultural feminists, as well as gender-critical feminists and reactionary feminists, and so on. You might be surprised as we were to learn that a majority of women in the U.S. do not identify as feminists, 
even though the overwhelming majority of us believe in things like equal pay and equal rights. We were perplexed, frankly, until we came across research that revealed why so many women are hesitant to embrace feminism, despite agreeing with many of its core principles. And here are some of those reasons. Many believe that feminism is stewarded by and for a small elite class of women in academia, who often rely, by the way, on a servant class of women to run their households. And these women are alarmingly out of touch with ordinary women's lives. Feminism has a long history of hostility towards marriage, motherhood, and traditional family life because these institutions are seen as oppressive or limiting to self-realization and fulfilling lives. The majority of women, however, want to live in harmony with men, have children, and form family units. Feminism maintains that women could have it all if only taxpayer and or employer-funded programs could provide maternity, paternity leave, uh, address uh, and address the cost of child care. And yet, 50 years after their movement, little progress has been made in the U.S. in terms of helping families. Feminism tells our young women they can be anything they want when they grow up, except full-time householders and stay-at-home moms. Uh, hashtag girl boss movement and portrayals of pregnancy as enslavement are readily available as memes on the internet. That's right. And, you know, despite the strides women have made in the public sphere, many of us navigate both spheres, even if we don't realize it. The majority of us will become mothers and oversee households at some point in our lives. Modern forms of feminism emphasize and promote women's achievements in the public sphere, but there's a notable silence about our roles in the domestic sphere. And while we recognize and appreciate the hard work and sacrifices of the feminists who came before us, we believe it's time for a more genuinely inclusive form of feminism, one that speaks for the broader and often silent majority of women, a feminism that keeps the hearth flame of humanity lit. So our next section is entitled, Who Tends the Hearth Flame Now? Amidst the sweeping tide of change and in our collective pursuit of progress, have we inadvertently dimmed the flame that nourishes the human family? To uh, really understand what we're talking about, we thought that it would make sense to first talk about what does a tended hearth look like. So we start with shelter. The sanctuary of home and hearth provide protection from the outside world. Home is a place of comfort and privacy and respite from the demands of the outside world. Within the secure embrace of home, individuals learn about themselves, define their values, and cultivate the confidence required to face life's obstacles head-on. Food. Our hearths are the hub of culinary activity in the home. The act of preparing food for others is an expression of love and care and helps to foster social bonds. The hearth is a classroom where knowledge is passed down through generations, preserving cultural traditions and promoting self-sufficiency. Then we look at family. 
Home and hearth are where family bonds are created and strengthened, where values and traditions are imparted and shared across generations. Home is the first place where we learn about trust, empathy, cooperation, responsibility, and countless other social and emotional skills that are essential for our future. Work on our ingenuity and labor and the collective efforts of families and communities. Our homes were sites of production connected to cottage economies and centers of education where the skills and knowledge were imparted from one generation to the next. So now we're going to explore what does an untended hearth look like, uh, essentially where we are today. So using this four, the same four categories, we'll start with shelter. Today, our homes are more comfortable than ever before, yet their sanctity as havens from the public sphere is at risk. The same technology that streamlines our lives also clandestinely tracks, records, and shares our actions with companies eager to convert our habits into sales. Devices meant to deepen connections are also vehicles for market-driven algorithms to infiltrate our private lives, vying for our attention in a bid to monetize our interactions. Moreover, this technology offers a potentially damaging gateway to our children, challenging the very essence of our homes as shelters. Food. The pressure and fatigue associated with juggling work outside of the home with family life have resulted in a growing dependency on quickly prepared processed foods, contributing to numerous health issues. Cherished family traditions and bonding over homemade meals have significantly diminished. Culinary traditions passed down through generations have mostly faded away, and most young people are barely proficient in the kitchen today. Family. Family unity is fraying. The vibrant tapestry of traditions and intergenerational wisdom quietly thinning. With children often cared for outside the home, the invaluable role of family and community in their upbringing is undervalued, potentially a great societal cost. When home, family members often retreat into private digital realms that create isolation and subvert the deeply nurturing connections that define the essence of family bonds. And finally, work. Once a hub of entrepreneurship within a bustling cottage economy, the home now stands largely idle in economic terms. Its residents labor now owned by the external market economy that was born of the Industrial Revolution. This shift also saw women journey away from the domestic sphere to the public sphere. No longer able to care for children while working in their homes, the cost and stress of child care outside of the home has become a new burden for many, many families. Our next page is called Hearth Broken Women. And when we're talking about these, uh, this category of women, we're talking about both with children and without uh, women trying to raise children while working in the public sphere are exhausted, as we've already talked about. Uh, they're experiencing record rates of depression and high levels of anxiety. In addition to their weekly work in the public sphere, women work an additional 22.5 hours at home. Often they bear the emotional burden of managing a home in ways we cannot quantify. 
Many mothers and homemakers who work full-time in the domestic sphere report feeling lonely and disconnected. Low status is often, often given to women in these roles, and they are seen as either oppressed, misguided, or unmotivated by many. Many women who have watched their own mothers and or peers struggle have realized that having it all is a myth. Citing a poor outlook for the future, a growing number of Americans are choosing to forego having families altogether. Educated women working in the market struggle to find suitable male partners who share their values and their income potential. And despite their stated desire to have children, half of all women who reach age 30 will go on to experience unplanned childlessness. And last but not least, to keep their homes running, many women have increasingly outsourced their homes to the market. We then look at what it means when we say the outsourced hearth. The quality, care, and wisdom of homemade has been replaced with the profit-focused market made. In 2022, Americans spent billions on outsourced products that, and services that stand in for our hearths. For example, we spent $362 billion on fast food, $61 billion on childcare. $37 billion on home entertainment, $12 billion on residential cleaning services, and $9 billion on prepared meal delivery services like HelloFresh. And that was in 2022 alone. The prior year, companies spent $4.6 billion on advertising specifically to our children. So again, we ask on the next page in our relentless pursuit of progress. Have we forgotten the pivotal role that home and hearth play in our lives and in a healthy society? In order to navigate our way home, we must first examine how we arrived here. We've identified four crucial shifts that we think may have caused us to lose our way. The first of those shifts is that the hearth lost its knowledge. The knowledge and skills of home and hearth traditionally passed down from one generation to the next through hands-on learning and shared experiences, have lost their value and their status in our culture or have been replaced by the market. The effect of this shift is now becoming apparent in younger generations, many of whom struggle to successfully manage their daily lives when they leave their parents' home. We grabbed a quote from Catherine herself here, who says... The hearth was once the school of essential life skills. Although the Industrial Revolution brought about immense progress, it emphasized specialization, leading us to overlook the well-rounded skills that were once nurtured at home and within the community. The next crucial shift was from home-based cottage economy businesses to public workplaces during the Industrial Era when the household was stripped of its income-generating capacity. This transition also recast the perception of work, privileging waged industrial jobs while inadvertently marginalizing the unpaid labor in the once economically thriving domestic sphere. We've got a quote here from Mary Harrington, author of Feminism Against Progress. In such homes, in parentheses pre-industrial era, Women might tend a small holding, make food or craft products for sale, make the household's clothes and perform countless other tasks, along with the care of children, that were every bit as vital to the household as earning money. 
The hearth also lost its cultural value. When women left the hearth in order to find equality, freedom, and financial autonomy in the public sphere, one of the unintended consequences was the marginalization of the domestic sphere. Newly accustomed to a paycheck from the market economy, the unpaid but essential household labor, as well as care, which was still largely performed by women, lost its value in our status hierarchies and in our collective subconscious. When we apply market economy metrics to value the labor performed in the domestic sphere, we lose sight of its mission-critical significance to our survival. We have a quote here from Catherine Marsal, who says, The devaluation of women's work in the home has consequences that reach far beyond individual households. It shapes everything from the global economy to social policymaking. And Catherine is the author of Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? Our final shift, which is a little harder to define, but I think we all see it everywhere, is that we have lost hope. Mm -hmm. We start the uh, page with a quote by E.O. Wilson. The real problem with humanity is that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. In a bid to monetize our attention, new era technologies deploy algorithms that reward outrage. When the primitive part of our brains fall for these market-driven strategies, we lose hope in the future and faith in humanity at a time when we need each other more than ever. We must let hope, not pessimism, be our self-fulfilling prophecy for the future. It is the only way forward. And we end with a uh, fairly well-known quote from Immanuel Kant, hope is a moral obligation. And we believe that with all our hearts. And this leads us to our next page and the big question, which is, how do we find our way home? The chaos we're experiencing is typical of massive societal change that emerges with new technology and forms of communication. A new era is upon us, one that presents an opportunity and a responsibility, perhaps, to chart a new course home. Old structures and ways of thinking held over from the industrial era will not endure or serve us in the information age. Now is the time for an upgrade. We end this page with another quote, which is from Deborah L. Spar the author of Work, Mary Love, How Machines Shape Our Human Destiny. Family structure and gender roles don't exist or emerge from a vacuum. Instead, they come from a complex interplay or ostensibly unrelated factors, most of which are sparked or at least accelerated by technological change. Our next page is Welcome to the Information Age. Opportunities abound. Democratized access to information, innovation opportunities in all sectors, major advances in physical and mental health knowledge, global connectivity helps us understand and learn from other cultures, open source work culture promotes collaboration and accelerates innovation, and positive shifts in societal norms. The challenges are real. We are facing job displacement and economic upheaval. 
information overload and viral spread of misinformation. Pressure to conform online limits open and honest public discourse. Siloed echo chambers create an us-versus-them mentality. Fear of online backlash may limit risk-taking, novel ideas, and innovation. And last, there are real privacy and security concerns. And so we all have to ask ourselves, how are we going to handle this? How are we going to go forward? What will you do? If you do nothing, unchecked technological advancement spurred by market interests drives our future. We delegate key decisions to AI systems that are incapable of understanding quintessential human experiences of embodiment, connection, and spirituality. Civilization will decline. Or we can take action. Collectively, we seek and develop new, robust narratives that help us build the character and strength needed to navigate this transition to a new era. We consciously choose not to become subjugated by our own creations. We innovate new systems that prioritize people and planet above market forces and technological progress. Civilization flourishes. The future is not something we enter. The future is something we create. Leonard Sweet. We choose action. And we're doing that by starting a nonprofit because we believe when the hearth matters, humans flourish. Our vision for our nonprofit is a world where mothers and householders are empowered with the respect, knowledge, and resources necessary to create nurturing homes, and every child receives the essential care they need to thrive. And our mission is to improve the social and economic status of those who provide care in our homes with practical 21st century solutions. Our final page describes our initiatives very briefly. In future chapbooks, we go more in detail over each one of these. That's right. The first thing we are doing is champion the domestic sphere. We embrace the philosophy of early feminists who viewed home as a sanctuary that required loving and skilled leadership and who saw the roles of householders as essential to human well-being. Our goal is to reintroduce and amplify this perspective in our cultural consciousness through our podcast, social media, speaking engagements, strategic partnerships, and a forthcoming book. We also actively engage with tech leaders to ensure their technologies are aligned with human flourishing. Our next initiative is to reignite the entrepreneurial spirit of home. Our business training program for home-based cottage businesses provides a viable route for those trying to escape the two-income trap, which we discuss at length in a future podcast, and significantly reduces the economic vulnerability of full and part-time mothers. We also want to build a 21st century cottage economy. And I know that sounds big, but we have a plan. Our neighbor-to-neighbor network model reimagines and upgrades our ancestors' cottage economy by uniting producers and consumers in a home-based sharing economy model. This model prioritizes human flourishing and makes financial sense. Multiple neighbor-to-neighbor networks form a domestic economy that coexists within the market economy. We also want to teach human flourishing. 
The skills and knowledge required to manage a household, find a mate, start a family, and successfully navigate the complexities of our new era are now largely absent in our academic institutions. Taking inspiration from both the practical skills taught in early home economics and the whole person educational philosophy of the 19th century Scandinavian building movement, our 21st century version will aggregate online classes from best-in-class thinkers from around the world and blend them with our own courses to create a hearthology curricula that teaches human flourishing. Right. And of course, this is going to take a little money. So the following page is uh, our fundraising goals for next year, uh, which you can uh, look at. We won't go over here in this audio version of the book. Um, But we do talk about on the page after that, how you might take action because together we are strong. Thanks so much for listening along to the hearth story and for giving us your time. If you'd like to read our chat books, they're available at www.thehearthmatters.com. If you prefer to listen, you are in for a treat that our next episode is going to be on our next chat book called Householder Feminism about how we drive meaningful change in the domestic sphere. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.